Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Good to go then, yes? Wonderful. Uh, so yes, once again, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Barbara Chuback, um, and uh, uh, I have no conflicts of interest. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm here to talk to you today about women's sexual health, and in particular, I'm going to be focusing on female sexual dysfunction, or FSD. So, as you probably have noticed, there's a great and growing lay interest in this subject, and with it, an abundance of healthcare providers and wellness gurus who provide various, often dubious, treatments in order to address it. Our gynecologic colleagues serve as the first line of defense and care for female sexual health. But as experts in genitourinary health for all patients, regardless of sex or gender, urologists do share in this responsibility. The AUA has recognized this obligation, first with its inclusion of FSD in the Journal of Urology's Urological Survey section since 2006, and more recently with its edition of First One and now several chapters dedicated to women's sexual health in the AUA core curriculum. The primary goal of this talk is to cover the subjects in the core curriculum. But arguably more important is my secondary goal, which is to problematize the content, contents of that curriculum by describing how our understanding of FSD has evolved and articulating some of the challenges that the field faces in the future. Whoops, it is a lot, so we may not have much time for questions or discussion. If we do run out of time, please don't hesitate to contact me, whether through email or through Twitter, with any questions or comments that you may have. And yes, as the slide I just uh, accidentally went to suggests, please brace yourselves for some cultural criticism. Because sex, like everything else in clinical medicine, but even more so, is not just about biology. It's about identity, religion, politics and economics, which is to say that it is about culture. Culture colors how we think and talk about FSD and is therefore the necessary starting point for any thoughtful consideration of its diagnosis and treatment, as well as the scaffold on which our management of FSD will grow and change in the future. So let's begin with a critique of how we talk about FSD. Specifically, the distinction made between female sexual dysfunction and male sexual dysfunction. We operate within a culture that relies upon a binary contrast between the male and female sexes, a point that has been reinforced by the political controversy surrounding which bathroom should be used by transgender people who problematize uh, and complicate that construct. And it is a construct, an invention of our particular medical culture, notwithstanding obvious differences between male and female anatomy, hormones, and chromosomes. We did not always choose to privilege these differences. For much of Western biomedical history, doctors and patients embraced a one-sex model in which both male and female were points along a single humoral continuum. Now, the humoral medicine on which the one-sex model was founded is, of course, no longer operational, but our current science offers compelling evidence of fundamental sameness between the sexes. You will recall that the embryologic beginnings of the male and female genitalia are identical. Genetic and hormonal influences determine evolution from that ambisexual baseline, with the clitoral and penile cavernous bodies labia majora and scrotum, vaginal vestibule and penile spongiosum, all homologous structures. Functional similarities also persist in the androgen sensitivity of both the male phallus and the female clitoris and vestibule, and the PSA sensitivity of both male and female periurethral structures, as well as the importance of identical neurovascular processes 
to genital arousal and sexual climax. So I know this talk is about women, but consider briefly what we know of male sexual function, which is of course characterized by penile erection. Phallic turgor is a balance of vasodilatory and vasoconstrictive mechanisms with parasympathetic nitrogic fibers from S2, 3, and 4, promoting smooth muscle relaxation via CGMP production and sympathetic adrenergic fibers promoting vasoconstriction. Arousal and direction involve both cortical inhibition of sympathetic tone and activation of the parasympathetic nitric oxide pathway. The latter is the mechanism of action for PDE5 inhibitors, which promote the persistence of CGMP. The same neurovascular process is instrumental in females, with the difference being that the clitoral cavernous bodies are almost entirely intrapelvic, so their erection is scarcely visible. More noticeable is the simultaneous increase in vaginal lubrication, which results from vag vascular engorgement increasing the oncotic pressure within the vaginal submucosa to produce a fluid transudate that transfers via mucosal aquaporins into the vaginal lumen. Thus, in addition to the neurovascular physiology that they share with men, in order to experience the easeful vaginal penetration that is the dominant physical characteristic of female sexual function, a healthy vulvovaginal mucosa is required. This tissue is reliant on estrogen and testosterone for its maintenance and is less prone to atrophy and dryness when its supply of these hormones is compromised. Classically, this compromise is a result of menopause which is why the currently favored terminology for vulvovaginal atrophy is genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM. While the GSM terminology is laudable for incorporating the urinary symptoms that accompany this tissue atrophy, including urgency, frequency, and increased risk of UTI, it fails to account for atrophy in premenopausal women which may follow from the use of the oral hormonal contraception and resulting rise in sex hormone binding globulin, which interferes with androgen and estrogen receptor binding. In addition to their relevance for female genital integrity and arousal, androgens are also known to act upon the central nervous system in a manner that promotes the desire for sex. The cognitive geography of sexual interest and activity is extremely complicated, as this slide would suggest, with several parts of the brain and many neurotransmitters involved. The relevant chapter in Campbell's, which incidentally I was excited to see on a recent, uh, in a recent resident conference because it didn't exist when I was uh, in training, uh, goes to town on this particular subject. And if you have any uh, special interest in neurourology, I'd encourage you to give it a look. But the summary version is that just as the autonomic nervous system regulates genital arousal similarly in males and females, so too are the central nervous mechanisms motivating desire similar between the sexes. Our brains are awash in hormones and neurotransmitters, some of which are pro-libidinal and others anti-libidinal. And our neurochemistry seesaws between desire for or aversion from engaging in sex. Many things, including many medications such as SSRIs, can tip that neurochemical balance to unconsciously tilt us toward or away from wanting and experiencing sexual satisfaction. Although neuroscience tells us that this biochemistry is as relevant in males as it is in females, the discussion of sexual desire, its motivations and its potential deficit is completely absent from our discourse about male sexual dysfunction which is focused almost entirely on erection and ejaculation. In contrast, hypoactive sexual desire takes pride of place in our discussions of FSD. I would argue that this discursive difference is more a product of culture than it is of science, as the stages of sexual response, which were first described formally by Masters and Johnson, now of cable TV fame, 
um, and which are included in our core curriculum for women's sexual health, apply equally to both sexes. This model of sexual behavior describes a progression from genital arousal or excitement through a plateau to orgasm, and finally resolution in which the body returns to its physiologic baseline. Now, since its formulation in the 1960s, various feminist researchers have critiqued and modified this model. Recognizing that healthy sexual activity typically starts with thinking about and wanting sex, as opposed to being coerced or forced into it, Helen Singer Kaplan preceded physiologic arousal with psychological desire. A bit later, Rosemary Bassan rejected a linear model altogether, instead formulating sexual response as a cycle, emphasizing the contribution of erotic stimulus or solicitation to sexual desire and arousal, in addition to any intrinsic spontaneous sex drive. She also pointed out how the emotional and physical satisfaction that is characteristic of the resolution phase may in turn inspire pursuit of further sexual encounters. Bassan explicitly designed this model with women in mind, but it can just as readily be applied to men as well. For example, a guy who's bored but not particularly horny, who chooses to watch pornography rather than say, law and order reruns, is more likely to respond to the former stimulus with arousal and orgasm. If that orgasm is satisfying, he is more likely to repeat the process rather than give up on sex in favor of an alternative source of personal fulfillment, like say, a career in law enforcement. Perhaps because Bassan's circular model was intended as a feminist intervention, no attempts have been made to study its validity in male subjects, although she has suggested that in her judgment, it is equally applicable to them. Meanwhile, a recent study that asked women which model they most identified with found that as many preferred the more conventionally masculine linear model to Bassan's deliberately feminine cycle. This exemplifies one of the foremost challenges faced by researchers and evidence-based caregivers in the field of sexual medicine, the challenge of asking the right questions. Cultural assumptions, norms, and ideals about sex have limited the scientific questions that we ask and bias our interpretation of the data that we accrue. As an example, we idealize a masculinity that is characterized by aggressive sexuality and an absence of emotionalism and neglect the possibility of an alternative, reactive, or responsive sexual behavior. Thus, men with low desire are de denied a space in which to pursue treatment, and standard treatment is typically limited to testosterone supplementation for lack of any data regarding alternative causes. In contrast, feminist revolutions notwithstanding, our society idealizes a femininity that is chaste, silent, and passive, incentivizing sexual disinterest, and the most commonly reported FSD condition is hypoactive sexual desire. These phenomena may be related, but none of the epidemiologic studies of FSD have explored this possibility. Oral contraceptive pills have been in use since the 1960s and are practically ubiquitous. They're taken by 16% of all women aged 15 to 44 and 60% of sexually active adolescents. But little data exists regarding the effects of these medications on vulvovaginal tissue and even less on sexual desire, arousal, and climax, simply because those research questions have not been asked. Similarly, our studies of perineal and pelvic surgery in women routinely ask about postoperative dyspareunia, but do not inquire regularly about side effects related to genital arousal or pleasure. It has been theorized that the dissection of the anterior vaginal and ventral periurethral tissues might compromise sexual sensation and arousal by disrupting the vestibular glands and neurovasculature in a manner homologous to non-nerve sparing radical prostatectomy. 
but pre- and post-operative patients haven't been asked about these aspects of their sexuality. So we really have no way to know. What do we know then? Well, we know that 43% of women report some FSD symptomatology when they're asked. This figure was first identified using data from the National Health and Social Life Survey, which included a national probability sample of 1,749 women between the ages of 18 and 59, living in households throughout the United States. The population surveyed was characterized by variation in marital status, educational accomplishments, races, and ethnicities, and they were asked to answer yes or no as to whether they had experienced various sexual symptoms during the previous year. These symptoms included lack of desire for sex, difficulty with lubrication, inability to achieve climax, anxiety about sexual performance, climaxing too quickly, physical pain during intercourse, and not finding sex pleasurable. Flaws of the study are that it only included people who reported partnered sexual activity over the previous year, and thus excluded women who avoided sex altogether because of their dysfunction, as well as that it did not inquire whether study participants were bothered by their symptoms, which is a prerequisite to the formal diagnosis and treatment of FSD. For this reason, the NHSLS was followed by another larger study, the prevalence of female sexual problems associated with distress and determinants of treatment seeking, or PRESIDE for short. PRESIDE surveyed a very impressive 13,581 women over the age of 18, asking them about symptoms of low sexual desire, arousal, and orgasm, along with a validated measure of distress, the female sexual distress scale. <coughs> Preside confirmed that 43% of women do indeed report sexual symptoms, but revealed that only 12% were bothered by those symptoms to meet the criteria for diagnosis of FSD. However, Preside did not ask its participants about dyspareunia, pain with sexual activity, and it assessed a population that was overwhelmingly white and well-educated, which limits the applicability of its findings. According to the World Health Organization, 8 to 22% of women worldwide suffer from painful intercourse, and both the American NHSLS and an international meta-analysis of FSD prevalence published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine suggest that women of color are at increased risk. Thus, the true burden of distressing FSD is likely a bit higher than has been suggested. Part of the challenge of interpreting the literature is that the conditions that collectively define FSD have changed substantially over time, complicating comparisons between papers and their data sets. Each edition of the ICD and DSM has described FSD with different diagnostic terms and definitions for them. You can see in this chart that since the turn of the 21st century, Disorders of desire and arousal have been merged and then separated again. Pain syndromes have come and gone from consideration. And arousal and orgasm disorders have been expanded to include hyper as well as hypo functionality. The AUA core curriculum tends to adhere to the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health nomenclature on the far right. ISWISH developed its diagnostic rubric in response to the deficiencies of the ICD-10 and DSM-5 and reflects an international consensus that's informed by the most current research and is informing future editions of the other classification systems, including the upcoming ICD-11. However, the ISWISH nomenclature has some significant problems. Its diagnoses vary in evidentiary basis with hypoactive sexual desire disorder, female genital arousal disorder, and female orgasmic disorder supported by levels two to three evidence. But female orgasmic illness syndrome and persistent genital arousal disorder are only supported by expert opinion and case report. 
And the deliberate exclusion of pelvic pain syndromes from the ISWISH definition of FSD is a poor reflection of its clinical presentation in which dyspareunia is a common source of complaint with other FSD symptoms often arising reactively due to the aversive nature of that pain. While there is certainly taxonomic value in distinguishing sexual pain from other dysfunctions, pragmatism requires that dyspareunia also be considered as part of FSD. Now, let's consider each of these diagnoses in turn, beginning with HSDD, or hypoactive sexual desire disorder. As I mentioned earlier, this is by far the most common female sexual complaint, and its prevalence is approximately 10%. It is characterized by a distressing decrease or absence of desire for sexual activity, whether that desire is spontaneous or responsive to erotic cues and behaviors. Low desire may be lifelong or acquired, situational or generalized. Different people have different degrees of baseline libidinality, and there is no objective ideal amount of sexual desire. If a person is asexual and not troubled by it, then he or she does not have HSDD. As a rule, the patients who are most appropriately diagnosed and treated for HSDD are those whose decreased desire is generalized and thus not amenable to relief by changing partners or self-stimulation and acquired, representing a frustrating change from a previous baseline. HSDD is frequently comorbid with other medical problems whose pathophysiology or treatment tilts patients' neurochemical seesaw in an anti-libidinal direction. Postmenopausal women are at higher risk than premenopausal, especially if their menopause was surgical and abrupt. An exception to this rule is premenopausal women who are using birth control pills for contraception, as these may also decrease their free testosterone and with it, their interest in sex. Other endocrinologic causes are hypothyroidism and hyperprolactinemia, whether the latter is due to breastfeeding a pituitary adenoma, or antipsychotic medication, the net result is decreased libido. Other psychiatric conditions that are implicated in decreased desire are uncontrolled depression and anxiety, which depress libido. Unfortunately, their treatment with serotonergic medications often does as well. HSDD may also be a pathologic coping mechanism developing in compensation for dyspareunia, emotional trauma, or a partner's dysfunction. Identifying and appropriately treating these underlying conditions is essential to the successful management of HSDD. The treatment of HSDD is otherwise directed at shifting the patient's neurochemical balance in a prolibidinal direction. One proven way to do this is to administer exogenous testosterone, which has been shown in several randomized control trials to increase desire in postmenopausal women. However, the testosterone patch that was used in these studies was never FDA approved, and the formulations of testosterone that are approved for men are difficult to dose appropriately in women who require approximately a tenth of the dose that a man does. I do offer testosterone to postmenopausal patients who are bothered by low sexual desire, but with an abundance of caution. They are informed that this use is off-label, that it has associated risks of acne, hirsutism, and clitoromegaly, and they must undergo regular blood tests to confirm that their free testosterone levels are within the normal premenopausal female range of 0.6 to 0.8 nanograms per deciliter. There are other FDA-approved medications that can be offered to patients with HSDD. Flibanserin, or ADI, was the first medication approved by the FDA for the treatment of any FSD, and its approval occurred in a storm of media controversy. Detractors pointed out that it isn't, on average, a very effective medication, resulting in only one additional satisfying sexual encounter per month versus placebo. Proponents argued that the absence of pharmaceuticals to treat FSD is the grossest sexism, 
when one considers the relative abundance of medications available to men for their sexual complaints. This comparison led the popular media to term phlebanserin, the female Viagra, and the pink pill in evocation of a contrast with the male blue pill. But in fact, the only thing that phlebanserin has in common with Viagra is that both were initially developed for treatment of another non-sexual condition. Just as Viagra was a failed antihypertensive, phlebanserin was a failed antidepressant, subsequently repurposed by pharmaceutical developers when it was incidentally discovered that depressed study subjects were having more sex even in the absence of improved mood. Why did this happen? Well, phlebanserin is a complex serotonin receptor ligand which agonizes the 5-HT1A receptor and antagonizes the 5-HT2A receptor. The net result is a decline in serotonergic and glutamergic activity and a rise in dopaminergic and noradrenergic activity to reduce cortical inhibition of libido and provide a prosexual stimulus. In multiple randomized control trials, the groups taking 100 milligrams of phlebanserin daily showed an increased number of satisfying sexual encounters and decreased sexual distress. Like any medication, it does not work equally well in everyone. In the studies, some women reported as many as six additional satisfactory sexual encounters per month, while others reported one or none. And like any medication, phlebanserin does have negative side effects. It can be sedating, so patients are advised to take it at bedtime. And this sedative effect can be augmented by alcohol, which patients must be advised to avoid taking together with the pill. More recently, a second medication was FDA approved for HSDD in premenopausal women. Bremelanotide, or Vilesi, a game that strongly suggests the marketing team was watching a bit too much Game of Thrones, is a melanocortin receptor agonist intended for as-needed use to provide a prosexual neurostimulus before sex. It comes, as you see, as an injection pen, which the patient administers subcutaneously about 45 minutes before their anticipated sexual activity. The duration of efficacy after each dose is unknown, and patients must be advised not to overuse the medication, as doses more frequently than once per 24-hour period, or eight times per month, can cause undesired hyperpigmentation of the skin and mucous membranes. It is, after all, a melanocortin agonist, and was initially developed by dermatology researchers pursuing an effective sunless tanning agent in the 1980s. Other adverse effects include discomforting nausea and transient spikes in blood pressure, which though short-lived may be dangerous to patients with baseline hypertension. The biggest problem with this medication at present is its relative inaccessibility. To date, none of the patients for whom I've prescribed it were able to afford the associated cost or avail themselves of the discounts that are, at least in theory, provided by the manufacturer. Another problem with both phlebanserin and bremelanotide is that they are only FDA approved for premenopausal women, when as we've established, there is a need for treatment of FSD in peri and postmenopausal women as well. Recent studies of phlebanserin have shown benefit in postmenopausal women in an effort to justify expanding its indication to this population. And the mechanism of action is as relevant to men of all ages as it is to women. So I do prescribe it off-label to male patients as well for a diagnosis of generalized acquired hypoactive sexual desire in the absence of any endocrine disorder or pre-existing and untreated erectile dysfunction. Female genital arousal disorder, or FGAD, is defined as the inability to develop or maintain genital arousal in response to a sexual stimulus, including genital engorgement, sensitivity, and vulvovaginal lubrication. Like erectile dysfunction in men, it may be due to peripheral vascular disease, neurologic disease, hypogonadism, 
and or psychological factors. Women who smoke or who suffer from metabolic syndrome or diabetes are at higher risk, as are women with vulvovaginal atrophy, aka genitourinary syndrome of menopause, as we previously discussed. Spinal cord or peripheral neuropathies, such as multiple sclerosis, may also present with decreased genital sensation and arousal response. Anatomists have noted a remarkable variation in the coursing branches of the pudendal nerve, making the effects of pelvic and perineal trauma on sexual response rather difficult to predict. Psychology also contributes substantially to the awareness of sexual arousal, with numerous studies showing that women do not necessarily experience the objective genital changes that typify arousal as actually being psychologically arousing. This is why Viagra was a treatment failure in women. While it objectively increased genital engorgement on vaginal plethysmography, study participants did not experience those changes as sexy. Now, insofar as FGAD has a physiologic cause, it is amenable to treatment in kind. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so as I was saying, treatments uh, that are potentially helpful are the management of vulvovaginal atrophy or infection to improve mucosal quality, the use of a clitoral suction device or vibrator to stimulate blood flow or nervous response, and even off-label use of a PDE5 inhibitor are all appropriate interventions. If the patient is resistant to or unable to avail herself of these treatments, compensatory use of vaginal moisturizers and lubricants is always an option for symptom management. But unless the patient is able to experience the resulting physiologic alteration as something erotic, these interventions have a limited potential for success. Therefore, addressing the pathophysiology is necessary but not sufficient. Psychological and behavioral interventions that address the reasons for this mind-body disconnect and cultivate an interoceptive awareness are also important to the treatment of FGAD. These do not necessarily require the care of a psychologist or sex therapist, though these can be extraordinarily helpful. There is a robust body of literature documenting the value of mindfulness meditation practice for this purpose as well. Persistent genital arousal disorder, or PGAD, is the converse problem. Rather than being unaware of her genital arousal, the affected patient is troubled by persistent, intrusive, unwanted, and distressing awareness of her genitalia, even in the absence of any objective changes that typify sexual arousal. Often, the affected patient develops an aversion to sexual activity for fear of exacerbating that unrelenting arousal. Initially, although PGAD was first described in women, uh, and is considered an exclusively female diagnosis by the AUA curriculum, the ICD-10, and certainly my version of the EPIC EMR, there are cases of it occurring in men, and I happen to be currently treating several young men with this condition. Unfortunately, we have no clear idea of what causes it or how best to treat it. Meanwhile, affected patients may suffer terribly some reporting suicidal ideation related to their unrelenting PGAD symptoms. Thanks to the development of a community of sufferers on social media, there are now a few documented cases of PGAD-related suicide. Hopefully, these patient groups will provide the support necessary to prevent similar tragedies in the future. There are an abundance of theories as to why patients might experience PGAD. Vascular, neurologic, pharmacologic, and hormonal etiologies have all been suggested. The most popular theory being floated at present, I suspect less because of the particular robustness of the evidence behind it and more because it is the pet project of Dr. Erwin Goldstein, a urologist and highly respected elder statesman in the field of sexual medicine, is that PGAD is a lumbosacral radiculopathy and therefore potentially curable with spinal surgery to address this underlying cause. 
It remains to be seen how well this theory will pan out. But in the meantime, empiric treatment options include the use of psychological and physical distraction, neuropathic pain medications, and neuromodulation. All patients should be encouraged to seek psychiatric support, not because it's all in their heads, but rather because PGAD is extremely difficult to live with and such support can be an invaluable coping mechanism. Phrased in this manner, patients are more likely to avail themselves of this resource, which can only help their treatment when we otherwise have so little of certain usefulness to offer. Female orgasmic disorder, shortened as FOD, is defined by a distressing, persistent, or recurrent compromise of orgasm quantity or quality. It may be lifelong, in which case the patient may respond to education about genital anatomy and coaching about how to appropriately stimulate her genitalia, whether alone or with a partner. Or it may be acquired. To understand why orgasmic disorder may be acquired, it is helpful to consider the physiology of orgasm in order to extrapolate its pathophysiology. Sexual climax is a complex process with neurovascular, hormonal, and muscular changes all occurring in concert. Peripherally, orgasm is characterized by involuntary spastic contraction of the pelvic muscles in response to a sympathetic autonomic surge. In men, this is accompanied by ejaculation of the seminal emission. Depending on the tonicity of the pelvic floor muscles and the productivity of the periurethral glands, similar squirting can be experienced by women as well. Centrally, the release of oxytocin and dopamine is accompanied by a feeling of attachment, affection, and pleasure. And there is a transient ischemia of the frontal cortex. For the moment of orgasm, executive function gets shut off. Although this is baffling from an evolutionary standpoint, it does provide us with a useful insight into why spectatoring or self-conscious observation and critique is a common cause of orgasmic dysfunction. If orgasm requires that you stop thinking and you don't stop thinking, then you're going to have trouble achieving an orgasm. This is true no matter what you're thinking about, your in-service exam, coronavirus, whatever. Again, mindfulness meditation to cultivate one's ability to be present in a single moment or sensation without distraction can help to overcome this tendency. From a physical standpoint, orgasm requires a sufficient excitatory stimulus to provoke pelvic muscle contraction. Without a functional sympathetic and somatic nervous system, adequate sensory stimulation and pelvic floor contractility orgasm will be diminished or absent. Thus, Kegel exercise to strengthen the pelvic floor muscles and the use of various sex positions and toys to optimize genital stimulation may be very helpful. Use of dopaminergic medications and oxytocin has been explored in small research studies, but the evidence is really too scant at present to justify their use outside of clinical trials with the exception of bupropion, which has dopamine agonist activity that makes it potentially useful in patients whose antidepressant treatment is implicated as the cause of their FSD. Finally, dyspareunia is pain with sexual activity. It may be superficial at the vulva, vaginal, localized from the introitus up to the cervix, or deep, felt higher, deeper in the pelvis and abdomen. The differential diagnosis of deep dyspareunia includes bladder pain syndrome or interstitial cystitis, endometriosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, and other uterine or adnexal pathology. Note that most of these are non-urologic diagnoses, and in the absence of comorbid urinary symptoms, I refer patients with deep dyspareunia to see their gynecologists. The differential diagnosis of superficial dyspareunia includes vulvar dermatoses, such as the so-called lichens, simplex, planus, or sclerosis, and provoked vestibulodynia, whether hormonally mediated or neuroproliferative. Vaginal dyspareunia may be concussive, 
If the penetrating object rams too forcefully against the cervix, or secondary to an infectious vaginitis, or most commonly due to high-tone pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. This condition in which the levator complex supporting the vagina, bladder, and anus is hypertonic and spastic not only causes difficulty with vaginal penetration, but also dysfunctional voiding of the bowel and bladder. It was previously termed vaginismus, but as the affected muscles are not actually those of the vagina itself, this misnomer has fallen out of favor. Fortunately, unlike the vaginal muscularis, the pelvic floor muscles are striated and under voluntary control, so they are highly responsive to treatment with physical therapy. Unlike Kegel exercises, voluntary relaxation of the levator muscles is rather difficult to learn. So I have found that teaching it is best left to the experts, physical therapists who specialize in pelvic pathology. Concussive dyspareunia can be managed with positions and toys that limit depth of penetration, such as the O-nut. Vulvar skin conditions should be identified with confirmatory biopsy if necessary and treated accordingly. The slide shows what is uh, to the initial view a very complicated algorithm, um, but if you uh, take the time to read through it, it is available from Andrew, Dr. Andrew Goldstein um, and his uh, email and website are on the top left of the slide if you wish to make note of them. Um, you know, he describes in the algorithm the identification of various vulvar skin conditions, uh, which ones, uh, if suspected, ought to be confirmed with biopsy, and their appropriate treatment. Provoked vestibulodynia often responds to medical and behavioral management including the avoidance of chemical irritants, the application of topical hormone preparations, antihistamines, and other medications that dull nerve response. But if the pain persists, vestibulectomy may be indicated as the treatment of last resort, with excision of the entire vestibule up to heart's line and a vaginal advancement flap to close the defect. Patients who undergo this surgery must be advised that post-operative course can be complicated by Bartholin's and Skeen's gland cysts due to the disruption of the gland ostea and that this may require further surgical treatment. And with that, we have covered the entire contents of the AUA core curriculum on FSD. Now you may be wondering, what about those treatments that I see in the media that are being hawked by wellness gurus and featured in women's magazines, on The Real Housewives, or online? There are exorbitant um, numbers, <laughs> uh, really abundant, uh, implausible, potentially dangerous therapies being sold to women for an awful lot of money. Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle and wellness brand, Goop, is particularly egregious, but not alone in this regard. Goop will sell you a $66 jade egg to cultivate sexual energy and intensify femininity if stuck up your vagina uh, or your friend's vagina. Never mind that jade is porous and the egg is therefore a setup for toxic shock syndrome. Goop also strongly encourages vulvovaginal steaming essentially sitting over a large pot of allergenic tea. The idea being that this will somehow detoxify and improve the hormonal balance of one's genitals. Before COVID-19 shut down the Medispas, these steam treatments, as they are called, were available all over town for about $125 a pop. It's easy to dismiss treatments that defy logic and are clearly dangerous, but when it comes to interventions that are reasonably safe and biologically plausible, things get rather more complicated. You've likely seen advertisements such as these for energy-based treatments of the vulva and vagina, including laser therapies such as the Mona Lisa and radiofrequency devices like Thermiva. These devices are FDA cleared for incision, excision, ablation, vaporization, and coagulation of soft tissue, including genital tissue. 
Rejuvenation is not listed among the FDA indications, but it is the reason for which they are commonly advertised and sold. Similarly, growth factor enriched platelet-rich plasma is not approved for use in the genital soft tissue, but is nonetheless being injected as a patented O-shot for treatment of FSD and other genital diseases. For women with vulvovaginal atrophy and other genital diseases, treatments that are non-hormonal and durable that don't require chronic daily or weekly dosing have a very understandable appeal. And the logic behind these therapies is sound. Laser and radio frequency energy devices inflict focal controlled tissue injury, prompting collagen and extracellular matrix deposition and new cellular, cellular ingrowth, thus reversing tissue atrophy. Studies have shown really beautiful histologic outcomes with normalization of tissue thickness and mucosal barrier following therapy and participants have reported improvement in sexual function using validated measures such as the FSFI or female sexual function index. But most of these studies are not randomized or placebo controlled, so they're ultimately untrustworthy to determine clinical efficacy. A recent small randomized controlled trial of fractional CO2 laser to treat GSM, comparing it to standard care with vaginal estrogen is a caution. <clears throat> Despite improvement of their atrophy, participants who received laser alone reported significant worsening of pain on the FSFI. The existing data to support genital PRP injection is similarly flimsy, with no published controlled trials. Thus, patients who opt for these treatments are in the unenviable position of guinea pigs being experimented on in ignorance and at their own expense. Ethical and evidence-based medical practice requires that these plausible but still unproven therapies be administered only in the context of clinical research trials. But there are many more research questions that our professional ethics require us to ask about the potential causes of FSD, especially those that are iatrogenic, medications and surgical procedures that directly implicate us as the causative harm about the accessibility and affordability of effective treatments for FSD, when so many are off-label or compounded and therefore ineligible for insurance coverage, about the medicalization of FSD and its association with vaginal rejuvenation and cosmetic genitoplasty, which have been described by some activist scholars as the basis misogyny Yet another way for a sexist culture to pathologize normal female anatomy, to control and commodify women's bodies. The recent Me Too movement calling international attention to systemic injustices against female sexuality and mandating correction of gender-based inequities requires that we engage very seriously with these accusations. As physicians and surgeons, healthcare providers and researchers, I am sure that all of you join me in the conviction that medicalization, diagnosis and treatment are tools that when thoughtfully wielded can bring meaningful benefit to our patients' daily lives. I hope that my talk today has not only provided you with the necessary building blocks with which to diagnose and treat patients with FSD, but also to think critically about how we should do so. I think we have a few minutes left for questions before the next speaker. Uh, but again, if we run out of time to address yours, if you have an interest in sexual medicine and are looking for further guidance, or if you'd like to get involved in research and writing on this and related subjects, please feel free to reach out to me. And of course, thank you so much for your attention. I will give you a round of applause from my living room. That was an amazing talk, Dr. Chubek. Thank you so much. Uh, very um, wide ranging. I felt like it was a, I was hearing from a urologist and a historian and an anthropologist and a psychiatrist and a psychologist all bundled into one. This was really awesome. Super. That's what makes it so cool. Yeah, super cool. Really, really great. You're really, I mean, I think you're really pushing this field forward in a really meaningful way. And it's, uh, it's really exciting, actually, to hear about this kind of stuff. Um, 
to your, I have one question, um, and this came up in a recent journal club um, that we were having. Um, when it comes to these new medications like Addy for sexual dysfunction and even evaluating some of these new technologies um, that exist for sexual, female sexual dysfunction, um, the endpoints in a lot of these clinical trials are kind of strange or um, seem not too meaningful. You know, we've talked about sat number of satisfying sexual encounters and how a increase in a half a satisfying sexual encounter a month led to the approval of certain drugs, et cetera. What do you think are meaningful endpoints to these studies and, and how can we do better when we're designing these kind of clinical trials in the future? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and you know, it, it, it's it, it's a problem that that many many are struggling with to try to find better, uh, more meaningful and reliable validated measures. Um, you know, by far the best is uh, in terms of validity across many populations is the female sexual function index, um, and I, I use that a lot in my clinical practice as well as in research. Um, the but you know e even that is not uh, a perfect measure. Um, it has a lot of questions for starters. Um, but more, more more importantly, it assumes that the only sensation that's relevant to female sexual function is pain. It doesn't actually ask about positive sensation or its presence or absence at all. Um, and you know, positive sensation is sort of part of why people choose to engage in sex. And so I would argue that that is a meaningful measure for the uh, subjects we are researching and patients that we are treating. Um, sex is so subjective um, that it's difficult to, to quantify effectively. And that's really where the criticisms of you know, measuring how many sexual encounters you have or how many satisfying sexual encounters you have uh, matters because you know for someone who never has sex maybe half an encounter on average per month or per six weeks is super meaningful maybe it is saving her sense of self and her relationships but yeah to an outsider that seems profoundly inadequate as a measure of success that's those are really great points and speaks to the amount of work that uh, needs to be done and that uh, work that you're currently doing so it's great i'm gonna have to refer the further questions to your